Welcome to Broadway World's Some Like It Pop Podcast. I am Matt Timonini, Broadway World Senior TV and Film Critic, and as always, I am joined by the brains of our operation, Broadway World TV's Los Angeles Bureau Chief and resident golfaholic Jennifer McHugh. Jen, how's Rory doing today? Rory is still three strokes behind Jordan on hole seven, so I know all of our avid Broadway listener fans. Um, at this point, when the episode drops, we'll know who won the Masters, so I'm probably just sharing gibberish. Yeah, I, I can't imagine there's a whole lot of us. Uh, we've, we've talked about the cross-section of theater and pop culture fans and sports fans, and it's a it's a small Venn diagram. And it's uh, literally just the two of us. Yeah, that's okay. You can follow Jen on Twitter at EpineQ, that's E-P-O-N-I-N-E-Q, and you can follow me at Matt. that's B-W-W-M-A-T-T, and you read us both across various Broadway World sites. And now you can follow Some Like It Pop on Twitter at S-L-I-P Podcast. We are slowly getting better at tweeting from that account. Jen, are you willing to make a pledge with me to start tweeting witty and insightful things about pop culture and sports and politics and whatever else we want to from at S-L-I-P Podcast? Can you do that? I have started the past few days. I um, let everyone know that the Hamilton people sang the national anthem at the Mets game, so I feel like that was a good start for me. Yeah, I'm proud of you. All right. Not only can you find all episodes of Something Like It Pop on BroadwayWorld.com, but you can also get new episodes downloaded automatically via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also, if you don't hate us, rate and review the show so that Jen and I have something tangible to fill the holes where our hearts normally would be. On this episode, we dive deep into a few of TV's most unnerving shows, review and preview some other TV dramas, and as always, we will end the episode with some show and tell. Jen, uh, you're watching The Masters while we record, so I understand that we will only get partial focus from you today. (laughs) But that comes on the heels of the NCAA basketball tournament wrapping up this past Monday by the time this episode comes out it'll be about a week and a half but to coincide with that we did our 2016 some like it pop a bracket challenge in our final four the 2000s movie number one seed the lord of the rings trilogy trounced 90s movies number one seed pulp fiction 71 to 29 both much to both of our dismays i don't understand who these people are voting for lord of the rings me neither and then on the TV side of the bracket, number seven, Lost, edged out number five, Friends, 57-43. Jen, I know the championship round of Lost versus the Lord of the Rings made you a tiny bit nervous. I believe you you tweeted, if Lord of the Rings wins, I'm not listening anymore, which makes doing this <laughs> podcast kind of difficult. But um, Well, Lost versus Friends was more of a Sophie's choice for me because those are two of my favorite 90s shows. But I was nervous at the final result, but pleased. Yes, fortunately, your beloved Lost beat the Hobbits, Elves, Wizards, Dragons, which I don't know what else is in there. Fairly handily, 70 to 30. Thank you to everyone who voted. We really appreciate it. Unfortunately, no one predicted that Lost would win. So we're going to have to come up with another way to give away this prize pack that I have assembled from random stuff sitting around my office. So check out our next list of Palooza. uh, And by then, we'll come up with a way for you to win something. All right, Jen, about two weeks ago, Hulu premiered an original drama called The Path. We discussed it on our last episode before either of us had seen a single episode. And we were both, I think it's fair to say, intrigued. Since then, they've released three episodes. The first two uh, on, I I believe, March 29th. And then the third episode uh, this past week. And another one will probably be out by the time this episode is released. We have both watched all three of them that have come out so far. So before we get into what we think, why don't you set up who's in the show, what it's about, and all the nitty gritty about the path. Well, to be fair, I did. I only watched the first two. Oh, okay. You didn't watch the third one. Okay. No. <laughs> um, now, from the trailer, and correct me if I'm wrong. Well, we always disagree, but whatever. 
I, from the trailer, got that it was going to be about a man who was lost and gets sucked into a cult. But I was pleasantly surprised to find that it was about a man who was basically raised in the cult with his entire family trying to escape it. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. I, I've had the same idea um, going into it. I mean, he's he's not raised in it from, from birth. He kind of marries into it. His wife was raised in it, and he kind of came in at a dark time in his life after his right. brother commits suicide. But yeah, he's he's an adult now with two children, one who's in high school, and he he's a, a member of the I guess they don't like the word cult, but yeah, you're right. He, uh, Which I'm uh, assuming they are encouraged to have children very young because Aaron Paul can't be more than his mid-30s and he has a 16-year-old kid. Well, I, I mean, not to out my own parents' age, but you know, <laughs> my parents my parents were in their very early 20s when they had me. So, I mean, it's a similar, similar ages. Yeah, so that's not too un, uh, unusual. Well, the big... The big names, I would say, in this series so far are Aaron Paul, who I previously mentioned, as Eddie Lane. And he is a convert to this non-cult, quote-unquote, called Meyerism. And his wife, Michelle Monaghan, who was raised in it since she was a little kid, correct? Yes, she was born into it. Yes. And then Hugh Dancy plays Cal Roberts, who is the kind of the leader, unofficially, at the moment. As Is it his father? No, it, uh, it's not his father. Cause that, the... That's something. Yeah, it's something we learn more about his background in episode three. Okay, sorry, but, I didn't uh, get it there is, yet. It is someone he's very close to the to the leader, and he's kind of his second in command. Okay. Okay. Um, so those are the kind of the names. There's also Minka Kelly of our our beloved Franca, uh, Franca Friday Light, Frank. Friday Night Lights. And oh, you, you don't mean the Charlie's Angels TV no, show? No, I'm going to um, forget that that happened. Okay. Um, also, Kathleen Turner is going to be a regular. Yeah, she's in, she's in the third episode, yeah. Okay, good. So when we begin, it is the devastation after a tornado, and the Meyerism people arrive to, to provide aid. And it, it's pretty clear from off the bat they kind of prey on people at their lowest points. And um, even though they're providing aid and assistance and everything, it's also kind of a maneuver to recruit people. And they come up across this person, Emma Greenwall, who was on Shameless as um, Mandy. And she is an addict who literally has nothing after the tornado and they take her home. And she quickly adapts and becomes obsessed with Cal and the whole movement and becomes a devoted follower. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a fairly good summation as to where we stand now i've seen three you've seen two how do you feel about the show so far because this is kind of in your wheelhouse it is i love cults well let me say that again (laughs) i love stories about cults i'm I'm a big like follower of jonestown i'm saying all the wrong things i like the mythology behind cult history Jen, like um, Jen, Jen has her own uh, Kool-Aid dispenser uh. <laughs> I I am just fascinated by the mindset of people that would fall into um following someone so blindly to the point of of death and killing and suicide and all of that stuff so yes this is my Let, wheelhouse let's, let's let's make it clear though and <laughs> so far in the path we have not seen any death no it's all been positive or, right and that's one of the things that I I that kind of struck me, but I'll let you finish how you feel about the show so far. Then I'll throw my two cents in. But like I said, I wasn't expecting it to be this. And the one thing that we learned in in the pilot is that Aaron Paul as Eddie went on some sort of a mission in South America. And in it, while 
on some some foreign substance had kind of had a vision of his quote unquote dead brother. Is that questionable whether he's dead or not or no? I don't see any reason to question it. I mean, okay. they they say this in the in one of the first two episodes. It was his older brother who took him in. They had a small apartment. He came home one day to find his brother hanging. Okay. They, he'd hung himself. So I there's, don't think there's that's a chance a... I'm really looking too far into this. But in a vision, he kind of is shown the fact that this Meyerism may all just be kind of, for lack of a better word, bullshit. And he starts to question everything. And when he comes home, he starts making contact with people who have escaped and realizing that it is life-threatening. Um, I, I feel like it's taking a little bit of a dig at Scientology, if not a very glaring, obviously one. I was going to say, a little bit of a dig? I <laughs> um, mean, because, because the, the, I mean, the thing that auto- automatically makes you think Scientology is that the whole foundation of Meyerism is this ladder. And you have to climb the ladder to get to different levels. So they talk about people at being at at level six or level eight or level 10. So that's scre- that immediately screams to me Scientology, even though Jessica Goldberg, who's the creator and writer and executive producer says, no, we aren't talking about Scientology here. Wink, wink. It's Scientology. <laughs> right. Exactly. Go ahead, Jen. Um, so watching him, because he's obviously very, he's a, a, a family man. He loves mm-hmm. his wife. He loves his children, but it's becoming clear that if he decides, clear, it's becoming obvious that if he decides to go through with this and tries to get out, there's a good chance he will lose his family. Um, So it's kind of that struggle with him and trying to pick which to be devoted to his family and this cult that he doesn't necessarily believe in anymore and trying to figure out if he can escape while remaining alive. What do you think? Well, first off, let me talk about the things that I think the show does well before I get to the one major thing that's holding me back from loving it. First off, I think the execution on the show is is fantastic. The feel and the tone is so off-putting and a little a little bit suffocating, I think. You always feel like at any point something scary or terrible could happen and it puts you into a very paranoid position, which I think aligns you immediately with Aaron Paul's character, he has a little bit of paranoia as if what if this stuff I've, I've believed for two decades, a decade and a half of my life is not real. So you kind of feel an instant empathy with him. I, a lot of the show uh, or a lot of that is because of the show's music. I think the music is really, really good in this show. And it also looks really great. There's some beautiful shots. They have some striking images and they do some pretty unusual techniques i think there's one that was a little bizarre that i don't think you've gotten to in the third episode yet but it's similar to how they show some passage of time for things and even the the vision scene that you mentioned uh when eddie is in peru so some pretty cool stuff i also think the cast is stellar and i think it's about time that we've recognized how incredibly talented uh michelle monahan is she's always kind of been like the love interest or the supportive wife like she was the best thing in the first season of or the most realistic and believable thing in the first season of true detective and here she's really great she's obviously the loving supportive wife but she's actually a higher up in Meyerism, and so she has a little bit more authority than her husband. So that plays, um, that's a pretty important thing as this as coming into that third episode, and I think moving forward. But she's really, really great. So so far, so good. However, the thing that I haven't been able to get over yet is the event that kind of opens up the door for this conflict, and that's the hallucination that he has. Obviously, I'm only three episodes in, and so perhaps. As more episodes are released, we'll understand a little bit more. But basically, Eddie 
begins to question his entire faith because of a drug-induced vision that the drugs are part of a Myrist ritual on a retreat in Peru. And basically, I guess, spoiler alert, he sees the Myrist movement founder in a hospital bed and a giant snake is slithering all over him. That's the vision that is supposed that, as far as we know, that is supposed to give him doubts about the legitimacy of this religion. Now, Jen, I'm going to spoil a little bit for you just to make my point. In the in the third episode, we find out that Dr. Stephen Meyer, the founder of Meyerist Faith, is actually comatose in a hospital bed in Peru. That's in so that's an episode two. Is it okay? Good. So we find out in episode two that he's comatose in a hospital bed, and. So that really confuses me because if these drugs at this retreat gave Eddie a vision that ultimately turns out to be true, are they saying that Myrism is real? Or is Cal, uh, um, Hugh Dancy's character, supposed to be the snake? Is Ooh, good. You know, I don't, I don't really understand what we're supposed to get out of that. If this vision ultimately has truth to it, why isn't that a reinforcement for the importance of Meyerism? And then if it's not supposed to have some sort of validity, what what about that vision makes him so shaken that he questions his entire faith? I just don't understand the impetus for him to want to get out of this religion and to question everything based on what we've seen so far. And again, like I said, it could completely change as we learn more because they do a very good job of slowly doling out information on this show so far, but I just, I'm just a little unsure about how we're supposed to feel about this. Well, I think in episode two, it's okay that you're unsure about it. I don't Absolutely. think you should have all the answers right away. I turned away from the screen cause I can never see a snake, whether in real life <laughs> or on television. Um, so I think that's really interesting that you, you um, projected that Hugh Dancy would be the snake. That's interesting, but it's, yeah, that's just a complete theory. I have, I mean, there, there was no allusion to it on the screen. I'm just trying to piece some things together. Correct. Um, everything that you're saying you're unsure of is what is is drawing me towards it. I I want those answers, but I'm more drawn in by the atmosphere, like this whole yeah. tiny little town of of Myers people, and and his son and another follower who have to. They have to attend public school until a certain age, until they're what is it called? Um, uh, so, until they turn sixteen is is when he, his son is like four months away from turning sixteen, and as soon as he's sixteen, he can leave school. Right. So, you know, being in public high school, of course, they're bullied. You know, as any outspoken religion would be, especially when they're on the grounds praying and everything. So, I just think that that whole storyline about existing in society as well as in this thing that is clearly frowned upon um that whole atmosphere sucked me in and i'm really interested aaron paul i think he's dynamic and um and and cal roberts is really intriguing because he seems to have this you know pure belief in in myerism and everything but then and the addict, what's her name? Mary comes in and she just wants to please him quite literally. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. And then two scenes later, he's like, well, all right. You know, you can, oh, yeah, you can do that, that if you want. There's more of that coming up. <laughs> so he's intriguing because he does have a little bit of the shadiness. Um, and if he is going to become this new leader, I, I just think it has a lot to offer. There's a lot of stories to be told in this in this setup that they've they've concocted. 
Yeah, there's there's a scene when Hugh Dancy's Cal is giving this big, uh, us Reformed Catholics would call it a homily, this big speech where he's talking about like Plato's cave or whatever, and he's going into this really long story and trying to explain how they're right and everybody else is 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 wrong. The entire time, all I wanted him to say was, and this is my design. That's all I wanted him to say. <laughs> I just wanted him to throw in some Hannibal, a nice little Will Graham reference, and I would have been happy. But the, the show definitely has a very definitive perspective. I mean, it it's clear, I think, from the beginning that we're not supposed to take Meyerism seriously, or at least not at this point. And I think we're almost supposed to even kind of pity the really sincerely devout members. But through episode three... I don't know that we're supposed to think them as evil. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any systemic abuse. There is a scene where Monaghan's Sarah character does kind of go a little bit off the reservation, so to speak, with Minka Kelly's character. But that's 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 an individual thing. That's not because of of Meyerism. So I'm I'm not supposed I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel about the movement. That's what they call it. They don't call it a religion or call it. It's a movement. I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel about the Meyerist movement. Yet, which is not a bad thing, it's just it's just odd when you think of this this story, like you said, about a guy trying to get out of uh, out of what is so clearly a cult. The cult's always the bad guy, and, and they're not so far. The people seem to be genuinely nice people. Obviously, this religion or whatever it is is bonkers. From the you know, so we see Sarah putting electrodes all over herself, and when she and Eddie are trying to to they, they interlock legs on their bed and call it connecting. Then there's this whole thing about this green poison juice in the third episode they're clearly crazy but they just seem like they're not dangerous they're just devout and honest wackadoos or even the whole um thing where he has to go through some sort of rehab when he falsely admits that he cheated on her yeah that's where the green juice comes in yeah he has to go into this this literal room and go through this it's a cell yeah Yeah, it's it's bizarre and I'm trying to remember which was what episode because I watched all three in a row, so I uh, I might have forgotten, you know, which was in which episode. But it's just, it's very interesting. I don't know what to make of it because generally you think it's about a guy trying to get out of a cult. You generally you would say cult bad, this guy good, trying to get truth. Everybody on the outside is 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 right, and that's not what we've seen so far. Yes, we understand that Meyerism is is probably just some made up bullshit that this guy came up with. But they're not bad people. They're doing good. They're very environmentally conscious. They're, they're, they're vegetarians. They recycle. They go and help people after natural disasters, like you said, probably for recruitment purposes. But they seem to genuinely believe it, and, and they're not doing any harm. So it's a very interesting dynamic that the show's created. I have a feeling that it's going to get a little darker as we move forward. But it's um, this is a good one. This is one to keep an eye on. I don't know how I feel about it yet. Just because there are so many unanswered questions, not only in terms of the plot, because I don't mind unanswered questions in the plot, the 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 reasoning, the unanswered reasoning has me a little off put though. But I think it, it's well constructed, well acted, um, well produced. So uh, this is one I'll stick with. I do. I think all that uncertainty is what is drawing me towards it. Like you mentioned, it's so easy to say, oh, the cult's clearly the bad guy, and he's got to get out, and he's got to save his family. That's so formulaic. And for right. them to turn against that and be like, um, actually, the cult's not that, cult's not that bad as, as of yet. So um, I'm really interested to see where they go with that. Yeah. I mean, and his family is 
Sarah's family, Aaron Paul's wife's family, Michelle Monaghan's family, they at one point they referred to as the Kennedys of Meyerism. So it's like they are the first family, so to speak, of this of this movement. So much so that Michelle Monaghan and, and Aaron Paul's son, like he wants to leave school early so that he can devote his life to the teachings of this group. So it's a it's a it's a very weird dynamic, but but one that is very captivating. And and anytime you can see Hugh Dancy going all charisma (laughs) it's good because he is captain charisma and he's very snake oil salesman in this captain charisma there's a superhero we are all in desperate need of (laughs) well that's actually was the nickname of a wwf wrestler uh known as the edge but there you go what happened on your retreat you've been acting distant since you got back Looking into the Myrus movement. I'm putting them on cold watch. How are you telling me something so I know that this isn't a trap? We don't hurt people. You sure about that? We who follow this path, we struggle with our relationship with the outside world. If darkness falls, we're light. We're not gonna blow. All right, we're going to move on to another show that has dealt with controlling religious cults in the past, and that is BBC America's Orphan Black. The fourth season debuts this Thursday, April 14th, on BBC America at 9 p.m., and will be immediately followed by a new Talking Dead ripoff called After the Black. I wanted to do, before we got into like some of the stuff for this season, I wanted to do a quick recap of season three, but I honestly couldn't tell you a single damn thing that happened in season three. I've said before that I see a lot of similarities between Orphan Black and iZombie, and one of those similarities is that I don't really care about or understand most of the storyline. I am in it specifically for the characters. That being said, it is basically the story of a group of clones who work together to try to figure out where they come from, why most of them are unable to have children, and why some of them are, are mysteriously dying. I think the first season of Orphan Black was one of the best seasons of TV that I've ever seen. Everything since then has been a mess, frankly. It's been convoluted and I haven't really understood it, but I've stuck with it because of the characters that have been built from the beginning, most of them played by Tatiana Meslani. Now, Jen, neither of us have seen screeners yet. BBC America, even though they normally do a pretty good job of sending out screeners, have not sent anything out for Orphan Black Season 4 yet. However, they did release the first four minutes of the season premiere. And, Jen, you watched that, correct? You did, and I did. It's it Basically, what happens in it is a bit of a flashback to before the series started. We meet a new clone who we had not yet met before. She will be a part of the season, a very important part of the season. Her name is MK. She is in contact with clone Beth, who throws herself in front of a train, spoiler alert, on the series premiere. So we get a little bit of that flashback, and that's obviously going to play a part into this current season. Season 3 ended with main clone and one of my least favorite clones, Sarah Manning, reuniting with her daughter somewhere in Iceland after her biological father had taken her away to protect her from all of the evil, weird groups that I can't keep straight. So, am I wrong? Am I wrong on my 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 analysis of Orphan Black, though? No, not really. Um, I think Tatiana Maslany is the main attraction to this show. Of course. She's dynamic and... And just gives a clinic and acting every week. But um, I'm, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into 
Oh, my yeah, my favorite that's... clone is, but I'm a, sure, I'm a huge fan of Alison Hendricks. <laughs> yes. Um, she is the housewife turned drug dealer, I guess you would say. <laughs> uh, she's just fantastic, and her and her husband Donnie have turned into this power couple inexplicably awesome. and they just make me laugh and i love um the smart one what's her name the casima casima uh, but but i think sarah is the least interesting and it's kind of been her story so flashing back to beth is is really interesting and i'm i'm interested to see how far they go with that because after spoiler alert killing off main character paul last year that would be an interesting way to bring him back into it is flashing back to Beth as he was her boyfriend and her handler or her yeah. monitor, I should say. Monitor. Yeah. Well, and, and the way the story goes, Beth was a police officer who had gotten started to dig deep into the entire world of these clones. And apparently it had gotten too much for her or something. And the season one premiere opens with her stepping in front of a train while her clone, Sarah, is watching just coincidentally on the same platform. So it is going to be interesting. I'm excited to see what happens. I'm What I'm hoping the most for is that season four is a little more simplistic and a little more focused than seasons two and three have been. Season one obviously had a focus of unraveling this story and presenting the characters and explaining who they are. Season two and three went into what I think is a huge mistake for a lot of these massive mythos shows. And that's, they attempted to create and expand their world way too fast. And it went from just this one group being involved with, with this group of clones to this group, a cult and then another government organization, and then another level of that one organization that was a secret society above them. And it just became so convoluted. And in season three, actually at the end of season two, but in season three, they focused on a group of male clones, Project Caster, that were all being used by the military. And I honestly have no idea what the hell that was all about. And I don't care. Uh, like you said, I think Tatiana Maslany is, on a weekly basis, gives the best performance of anyone on television, mainly because of how much she is asked to do. She is asked to play the show's three or four main characters, and she does it brilliantly. I agree. Alison Hendricks is tied for my favorite clone. My second favorite, my other favorite clone is Helena, the Hungarian homicidal clone who has gone from trying to kill all of her sistras to being kind of like their weapon Sistra. to use against everybody. Sistra. Sistra. Yeah. So whatever. You're Eastern European language girl. But... <laughs> But, you know, I'm hoping that they just focus this season on one storyline. Don't get too funky and crazy about it. And just tell us about the sisters. That's who we care about. We don't care about Project Caster. Uh, we don't care about Mrs. S's history. We don't. That's unimportant. And I don't care about Rachel's parents and all that stuff. I want to focus on the girls. And then the fact that we haven't... I think this was in season two and we haven't gone back to it yet. That there's another younger sister clone... That the head of some the one of the secret organizations that I can't remember, she created another clone who's younger now, and I just don't. I, that was just completely left for most of season three. So I'm hoping that we just focus on the main stuff, and that's just and let let Tatiana Maslany play, and let there be another Allison karaoke moment or something along those lines because those are always fun. <laughs> or a dancing in the bed making it rain was one oh, yeah, of that was which was too. my favorite scene yet. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. The plot has gone off the rails where it's just kind of. It's one of those shows where you can now like put it on in the background as you're doing other stuff, and I don't want it to be that way. I think it has more to offer. My other shout-out I have to give is to Fee, 
Um, his <laughs> her best friend Felix, who she calls Fee, played by Jordan Gavaris, who does an impeccable British accent for an American. And um, he is a, a scene stealer in many of the scenes, like holding the screen with Tatiana Maslany. I mean, she's going to pull the focus, but he holds his own and is always a, a good for a cheap laugh when he's on screen. Yeah. Point of clarification. He is Canadian, but that's neither yeah, that here nor was, there. That was very xenophobic of me. I apologize. I heard him on in an interview. I was like, wait a minute. He's not British? I love when that happens. That's just an amazing um, feat when you can pull off a flawless accent like that. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to this. This is one where no matter how off the rails it goes, as you said, I'm probably going to keep watching just on the strength of of Tat's performances. So hopefully season four of Warframe Black gets back to what they did really well in season one. And that's also not only telling a really interesting, compelling story, but also getting back to a lot of really important ethical and scientific questions that had to do with gene manipulation and a woman's right to choose and a woman's control of her own body, going back to something where there were supposedly markers in their DNA that made them copyrighted. They were actually the property of the of the company that helped create them. So, I mean, there's some really interesting, deep political and ethical questions that this show is built on, but I feel like in the last couple of years, they've gotten away from much to the detriment of the final product. Agreed. Um, agreed. <laughs> I can't really add to that. Yeah, I know. Brilliant. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I meant. Hello? I saw them. The cheek choppers. Follow the coordinates. What? Remember, don't trust anyone next to you. Uh, who's that? No one. Alright, on this episode we have already talked about Jen's unnerving and unsettling obsession with cults. We are now going to talk about Jen's uncomfortable and off-putting obsession with true crime and murders. Jen, we're going to talk about this because this past week marked the, I don't know, is it season finale or series finale of American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, obviously American Crime Story. Apparently we'll be back as it's going to be an anthology series sometime next year, but in terms of O.J., we've seen the end of the juice. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Sorry, Cuba. Um, (laughs) So, Jen, now that we've seen this entire series and we've talked about it uh, before, we've both really enjoyed it. But I want to hear now that we're done what you thought. Well, I think ever since they had started the whole casting process, I had been looking forward to this and I thought they did such a great job with the casting. But I wasn't expecting it to be executed quite as well as it was as I'm kind of light and dark on (laughs) on Ryan Murphy. I I go back and forth on him. But I think he did a really good job. And obviously, the things that stuck out were Courtney B. Vance and Sarah Paulson, who I think couldn't have done any better at representing Marsha Clark and Johnny Cochran. Sarah Paulson, especially when she walked into the courtroom after Marsha Clark had gotten her hair done. um, (laughs) Marsha Clark was just a lawyer. That's all she was. Not that that's, you know, down on lawyers or anything. But Going from that to being thrust into the national spotlight and literally people talking about what she was wearing every day, she didn't know what to do. And even her boss was like, you need to step it up. You need to do this. You need to do that. And she went and got her hair done. And she was so excited. And she walked into the courtroom and walking in, going from complete confidence to complete confusion at the reaction to utter embarrassment in with no words. 
Um, she was just amazing. Um, do, do you know what scene I'm talking about? Oh, do absolutely, yeah. That's it's you see it like you said. You see her from from walking down the hallway into the courtroom, going in, taking a seat, and I think at that point, even like I think Judge Ito even gives her the mm-hmm. eye, like, uh-huh, like what? what are you thinking? Yeah, but it was, and I remember and it was that. done without. Yeah, it was done without words too. So you saw it all on her face. Uh, she is easily one of the best actresses alive on TV, <laughs> on stage, so anywhere. She's so good. She's so good, and I and I remember that because as we've discussed, I'm I'm super old, and I clearly <laughs> remember the front page of all the papers when she got her hair cut. That's all it was talking about. It had nothing to do with the trial. It had nothing to do with the case. It was all about her hair. So seeing it from her perspective and how devastating it was, it was just really well done. The other thing was, I think, Sterling K. Brown as yes. Christopher Darden. Like, have you seen him before? No, we. T- I think we talked about this the first time we talked about the yeah, show. Yeah, he, he was like just... With all of these stars in this series, he's one that I had no idea who he was. But he was just epic. stellar. And um, I think one of the scenes that really struck out at me was, I believe it was in the finale, after the verdict, and he's just broken. And and he runs into Johnny Cochran, who he's always kind of idolized. And Johnny Cochran's like, you know, don't worry, I'll, I'll get you back in favor with the black community. And he's like, I was never out of it. He's like, we just disagreed. And kind of puts Johnny Cochran in his place. And I don't know if that's an actual thing that happened, or if it was dramatized, or if it was a rumor. But the scene between those two men where it's almost like Christopher Darden becomes kind of a man. And um, <laughs> I just really enjoyed it that gentleman's performance and i hope that he uh, gets more work because he was he was kind of a revelation yeah i while we're talking i looked up his his cv so to speak not a lot on on film but he has had fairly regular appearances on tv for a decade and a half nothing major he was on army wives which is a show that i didn't watch and then had some guests and recurring spots on other stuff but for the most part you know he's just kind of been a, a workman you know workman yeoman actor in in LA but this is definitely a a star making performance. I agree with you with all of the talk in this show about David Schwimmer and John Travolta and Cuba Gooding Jr. the the real standouts were Sterling K Brown, Sarah Paulson and Courtney B Vance. Not surprisingly that two of the three of those are Broadway regulars, you know, Courtney B Vance and and Sarah Paulson. Um, and there was a ton of other Broadway people in supporting roles as well. But those were definitely the three best performances. But the thing that struck, uh, that stood out to me the most is something you mentioned, and that is how un-Ryan Murphy this show was. Yes, there were moments of the stereotypical Ryan Murphy cheese. There were definitely beat-you-over-the-head moments with my message points, and that was definitely there. But the things that I think define Ryan Murphy TV shows for me, whether that's Glee, Nip Tuck, American Horror Story, is that they usually start off really strong, either on a, with a series premiere or a season premiere, and then after an episode or two, just turn into complete and utter rubbish because he's lost focus and gone somewhere else. This show, and I don't know if it was because he necessarily wasn't the person that was running the show, but this was the most consistent story arc that I've ever seen in a Ryan Murphy show. From beginning to end, there was no weak spot. And in fact, I think my favorite episode was the, I guess, third to last, which was the one about the jury, because it it was a bottle episode. Yeah, it was a bottle episode that just continued the arc of the story, but told, you know, the inside details of a group of characters that you really hadn't seen at all the rest of the season, but made you care about each and every one of them and their incredibly different perspectives. And I will throw out a little piece of 
of trivia, which Jen, I you might know, you might not. The the woman who played the jury foreman. Did you recognize her by any chance? Yes, she was in. You know what? I go ahead. <laughs> well, she played. She was she... the wife of O.J. Simpson. Yes, there you go. She played O.J. Simpson's wife in the Naked, Naked Gun. Gun series. So how how weird is that? You go from playing this man's wife to playing the foreman of the jury in a mur- in a trial of which he is uh, accused of murder. But like he, some... she played the wife of actually O.J., not yes. just like actually O.J. in Naked yes. Gun. Yes, yeah, a- actually crazy. O.J. Yeah, it's so weird. It's so weird, but I love it. But um. But yeah, it's it's just a a very well done TV show, and I think the thing that I love about it the most is that it's perfectly timed. When so much of our political and social discussion right now is about things like Black Lives Matter and police violence and police ethics and the confrontation between the African American community and the law enforcement community, it seems to be so perfectly placed. And then to have Robert Kardashian be a main point of this season about a show that is about celebrity when his daughters have been the epitome of what's wrong with celebrity culture. It just seemed so perfectly timed that it couldn't have come out at a better time. And, and I applaud Ryan Murphy and everybody else there. And and I think that's pretty much been universally accepted that this was a triumph in every imaginable way. It was. It was everything I hoped it'd be and way more. Yeah. So much so has it been praised as a triumph in every imaginable way other networks are already trying to rip it off. Uh, it was announced this past week that NBC will be developing Law & Order True Crime to start its first season based around the Menendez Brothers trial. Ooh. And then on Friday, that, that one of your favorites, Jen? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Of course it is. And then it was announced on Friday that CBS is developing a miniseries based on the Jean Benet Ramsey murder. So, Jen, first off, let's just talk about those Apparently, you're a fan of the Menendez brothers. Okay, let's be clear. I'm not a fan of the Menendez brothers. I'm a fan (laughs) of the case because it's a very interesting story. Um, They're very scary. But I do remember this trial. And the reason that I mostly remember this trial is because of an SNL skit starring, uh, his name is escaping me, John Malkovich. Oh, God. And I just remember laughing really hard at it, but then realizing just how accurate it was. Then I started following the trial. For those who don't know, it was about two rich boys, 21 and 18 years old, who killed their parents in the middle of the night. Um, Their attorney, notoriously uh, defending celebrities. She also repped Phil Spector. And I can't remember the other big one. She, uh, Oh, um, John Gotti. So she represented them and claimed a lot of sexual abuse. They went to prison for life. But in the trial, like their first few days, they showed up in suits and they came off as cocky. They were giggling at the at the judge and the jurors and just came off very unlikable. And then when they came back, they were in sweaters, dressed like little boys, very sorrowful, very like they cried on the witness <laughs> stand. It was it was literally a TV show before it's being made into a TV show. So it'll be very entertaining to watch. And I think the trial went on for close to four years. I think the it ended in a hung jury. They wound up being retried and it went on for close to four years. Whew. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What about what about John Bonet? Is how awesome would it be if Katy Perry starred in that? As John Bonet? 
Well, I, there are some people out there who believe that she <laughs> is John Benet Ramsey. I, I guess that would I don't like the whole beauty queen little yeah, person pageant. That's so uncomfortable to me. Like the whole toddlers and tiaras thing. I don't understand that. So um, that'll be interesting too. I didn't get into that as much, but I I, I love watching true crime. Which is terrible. I'm not advocating true crime. I just need to be clear. It's awful. <laughs> but I really like good television. Okay. So you're not advocating advocating that anyone go out and commit a true crime. But with your vast knowledge, are there any other cases, true crime cases, that jump to mind that you think would be good for miniseries TV treatment? Well, I really like the Ted Bundy story. And I know they had a really big miniseries called The Deliberate Stranger back in the 90s. But I think that that story is compelling enough to be redone with a modern cast. Um, Also, the Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, I think, would be really interesting. And I would like to learn more about the Jodi Arias story because I didn't follow it much. So um, I I think that they could do a really good job with that. What, what about what do you what do you think about Casey Anthony? Uh, wasn't that, soon? was that just not done? Am I thinking uh, of something um, else? I think it was. Or I'm Maybe thinking of Amanda Knox. That was just done. I think they've all been done kind of over on Lifetime. I think yeah. Rob Lowe was in one or two of them. But um, I remember they cast Donna from West Wing as it, it was it either hmm. Amanda Knox? Yeah, and they look exactly alike. Huh? She's a little old to be playing Amanda Knox, isn't she? I don't know. Maybe this was a, maybe maybe it was longer ago than you think. Maybe it was. Okay. I did not. And could not. And would not. Commit this crime. Okay, we will continue our TV heavy episode by reviewing and previewing some TV dramas and comedies. We're going to start with two dramas. And Jen, since I don't like to laugh, you can go ahead and finish us off with some comedies. <laughs> the, the dramas are FX is Americans. Jen, you and I are both on record as saying that it is one of our favorite shows. Why don't you just kind of give us a catch up as to where we are after the first four episodes have aired? Well, as it ended last year, um, they had decided to tell their daughter Paige the truth. And she, in turn, told her pastor, who she was very close to, the truth about her parents being Russian spies. So this season has been them trying to maneuver how to deal with her and kind of handle her with, well, kid gloves and try and explain to her that it's not a bad thing and what they're doing is for a mission, but also finding out that she had told his her pastor, who had also shared it with his wife. So the go-to reaction is to kill him. But now that she knows what the daughter knows what they do, it would be very clear what had happened. So it's been an interesting kind of um, lesson in how to keep their daughter on their side without doing what they normally do and having to come up with different solutions on how to deal with the problem. On the job side, they've had hmm. to deal with the threat of chemical warfare, which is, and you know, horrifying. And watching <laughs> their, is he their handler, F. Murray Abraham? That's not F. Murray Abraham? Nope, that's, that's not F. Murray Abraham. I'm thinking that's of Frank Langella. Homeland. Yeah, that's the wrong, wrong <laughs> show with spies. You're thinking of Homeland. It's all melting into one. But they watch him almost become a victim of the chemical warfare. So they're having to deal with that. And Martha found out about Clark. Martha is 
Um, <laughs> there's so much going on. <laughs> Good luck explaining this one. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Martha found out about Clark, and now Martha is uh, one of the top suspects for Stan and his colleagues at, at her office. Um, FBI. I'm simplifying that so much. Yeah. And what was the other last plot point was... The main plot point that happened in this past episode. The main plot point is um, Tatiana. Is that her name? Um, no. Her, her name is Nina, Nina. Sergevna Krilova. That's what I said. Right. Uh, she has been being kept captive and she was executed most recently, uh, which in a very brutal way not that there's a lot of humane executions but well when you watch as much true crime as you do you can differentiate <laughs> between brutal and humane executions. i've never seen that though where they're like oh by the way we're gonna kill you and she's like what and she's shot uh, yeah it was, was great they were shocking. like you, you've been you've been sentenced to death it'll happen fairly soon gun to the back of head pull the trigger now you're dead that was amazing i i I jumped. Yeah, but it was great. But yeah, it, and I think what's so great about the way you just described this this season is that that's how this show is. It is there is so much going on, and what's crazy about it is is that Nina, this character who has been a major part of this show since the very beginning, I don't know that she's ever had a uh, ever had a scene with either Matthew Reese or Carrie Russell. Then you've got, you mentioned, Noah Emmerich's character, Stan Beeman, is an FBI agent, other than the episode at the very beginning of this season where he confronts Philip about potentially having an affair with his ex-wife. They, I don't know that they've had more than a couple scenes together in the past season and a half. It's There's so much going on, and it is very much interrelated. But because it's about spies and doing things undercover and trying to, um, trying to impact things that you are not directly connected with all these storylines are out there in the ether and are only tangentially related so that really under underscores how intricate their work is and i think it's fascinating to see that richard thomas another one who's been on this show from the very beginning he's never been in a scene with most of the main characters and it's I, it's just fascinating to me how they construct this i also think that this is a great example of Everything we were just saying about Orphan Black, how it it had too many storylines, it got too into all these different expanding their world, and you kind of lose yourself in it where you're just like, oh, I can't keep up with all this. The Americans does the same thing, expands the world, introduces new characters, introduces new plots, and I can't look away from the screen. So I think they're succeeding where Orphan Black is failing. Yeah, well, because... What I said about Orphan Black is how I couldn't tell you a damn thing that happened. It is extra true for the Americans, but I love the Americans for it because their focus is always on the character. And that's the difference. Philip Jennings and Elizabeth Jennings are the people at the center of this show. And no matter what other crazy spyness happens, their relationship is what it all comes back down to. And not only, obviously, there's other things, the relationship that Stan had with Nina and all of the people at the... Um, at the at the USSR consulate office. And also, there's a lot of other things that are important, but at the center is always the true human relationship that these two Russian spies have, even though they were basically forced together. They were It was an arranged marriage for work purposes only, but that relationship is still at the center of everything they do, where on Orphan Black, yeah, the sisters love each other and they, you know, they work together, but that's not the focus. The focus is on the crazy science stuff. Yeah, and it's, of course, you know, for me, the real stars of the show is always the wigs and the costumes. Um, 
And the music. And the music. And I know you didn't watch this week's episode yet, but the... The, the one that comes out... Um, tonight. Yeah, on... But if you listen to this this episode the day it comes out, it's Wednesday, April 13th, the, the fifth episode of the season. I have not seen it yet, but Jen has. But the last song of the episode, it's not only one of the greatest songs of the 1980s, but it completely represents 100% everything that every single character is feeling. Yeah, brilliantly constructed show and could not exist probably on any other network than FX. I uh, FX has easily become my favorite network because they allow auteurs, showrunners to do things that they couldn't be done anywhere else. They don't care about episode length. I mean, you can get episodes of Fargo and same thing with the Americans that are an hour and six minutes. Sometimes they're 45 minutes. They don't care. They let you tell your story. Ratings failure doesn't bother them because that's not what this is for, for a cable network. They are in for the prestige, for the recognition they get, and that's where they get advertisers. And those advertisers then keep them on cable packages, which is where they actually make their money. So I love love FX, love what they've done with the Americans and Fargo and, and some of their other shows. But if you're not watching the Americans start at season one, catch up and you'll, you'll, you'll thank us at that point. Agreed. Okay. So another show that I think is the exact opposite of the Americans, <laughs> even though it has some stuff in the political intrigue in the past is Hulu's eleven twenty two sixty three, And I say it's the opposite because it takes a world that could be incredibly convoluted and could be a very intricate story and boils it down to, I, th- I actually think it boils it down too much to a story that to me, as it went on, I don't want to say lost its compellingness. Is that a word? Compellingness? It didn't lose it. It definitely changed it. And it wasn't, definitely not the show that i thought it was so jen you read the the stephen king book that this was this was based on and inspired by obviously we knew going in it's stephen king it's like an 800 page book there is no way in eight episodes they were going to be able to get everything in there but now that we've seen the entire series what did you think about the adaptation from what we what you read in the book to what we saw on the screen I hate being this person because I really hate when people say this, but the book <laughs> is way better because because of the 800 pages. You know, they had to boil it down to just his, Jake's story in Dallas. Whereas the book takes, for, with him flashing back and forth, like he, he does a lot of test runs before he gets to Dallas and sets up that the entire meat of the story so he spends three years up in maine where most stephen king books do and Mm -hmm. he there's a lot of things that happen there that builds up his character that makes you root for him that where he's you're on his side more whereas i don't think that the series captured that enough um of course you know we're on his side like oh yes stop the kennedy assassination we're all on board (laughs) for that but i don't feel like the series captured him, I don't know if I don't. I don't want to blame James Franco because I don't think that he's necessarily... no. Because I think he did a great job. Yeah. I, I thought Franco was great. I, but I understand what you're saying, and I haven't read the book. It just felt like it wasn't. It it tried to tell too many different fragments of story without settling on a through line from beginning to end. Right, and the whole thing with with him saving um his students, uh, father from killing his mother, like that's way more of a plot in the book. So it's, it's very, it, in this series, it felt like it was dabbled on like, Oh, look, we can do that. That's cool. 
where it's, it plays way more into the entire narrative in the book. And I yeah. think it's important for his, uh, him as a character as well as for the end result. But I, I, and I can't say what I didn't like about the series. It was just, it just got boring and it was compelling story. It was a compelling performances, but it didn't hold my attention. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a story that was set up around the conceit that he's going back in time to save JFK from assassination. Unfortunately, that was a that was almost the B plot of the show. It was much more about his relationship with the Sadie Dunhill character played by Sarah Gaddon and their kind of romance and dealing with her abusive husband played by T.R. Knight. And I have no problem with that. If they wanted to focus on that, that's fine. But I, they weren't well interwoven. They were so disparate. They, they There wasn't a, any connective tissue. And I just felt like they left so many characters unattended like the the yellow card guy yeah like like he was at the beginning and then at the end but we never really understood what was going on like he explained that he was going back he was could time travel too and he was trying to save his daughter i think and it was just like okay who cares and then you know you've got people like like tanya pinkins character who played played the secretary at the school that they worked at named mimi and had this whole great thing about at the beginning where she's like, I like you, but I don't trust you. And then that was just kind of left until later in the season when we found out she had cancer and she was dying. And it was just, it just felt like they, they wasted so many great plot points, so many great characters, so many great actors and didn't get the most out of this story. And it's too bad because I, like I said, I think James Franco did a really good job. I thought Sarah Gadden who played Sadie was, I mean, I've never seen her before, but she was, she was fantastic. She was delightful. Yeah, and she was great, but it just it just kind of something that left me wanting a different version of this same source material. Yeah, I and again, I, I don't know why I didn't like it. It had all of the elements. It just, I don't know. There's just so much on today, you really... Who is the kid that played um, his friend George? Did you know? Um, like the guy who he... The ginger. The ginger. He, oh, the guy who he says uh, has him play... I don't think his name is George, is it? He, I think his real name is George. Bill. Bill, yeah. Um, his name is his real name is George Mc, uh, McKay. He's a British actor. Yeah, I liked who him. I, yeah, I don't really know much about him. But what was interesting, and from what I understood in um, in this, that character is actually an older man in the mm-hmm. novel. Yeah. And they needed to have a way because the novel has so much narration. They needed a way for James Franco's character to get some exposition out there without doing narration. They didn't want to do narration, so they took this character, made him younger, and basically turned him into James Franco's character's sidekick. Right, because in the book he doesn't live in a boarding house. He lives. He always lives alone. So that yeah. whole setup was contrived. Yeah, but but uh, George McKay is a British actor with a lot of stage credits. Of course. There you go. I don't know why I even doubt it. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, last year he did, uh, you know, Neil play on the West end. He's done some plays with Saoirse Ronan. So, you know, go That's theater. That's right. He was in that movie with Saoirse Ronan about world war three. Okay. Now I know where I know him from. Sunshine of Leith. Nope. <laughs> oh, that's, that's something he did with, Oh, how I live now. Yes. Yes. That was it. All right, now, here's something, Jen. We're going to stay, again, kind of... It's funny, the first three shows that we're reviewing and previewing all have some sort of a political bend to them. This one, much different than the first two, though, (laughs) and that is 
your beloved Veep is returning to HBO. So catch us up where Vice President Selena Myers is nope. she president now? President. Okay. Still don't know what party she is though. <laughs> no, no, undisclosed. Okay. Okay, so catch us up with that, where we left off, what's going to happen in this new season, and what you're looking forward to. Well, I will say that I had heard that some White House staffers had been interviewed and asked, what's more like the real West Wing, the West Wing or Veep? And they said, West Wing in theory, Veep in reality. So that (laughs) just makes me happy. (laughs) Uh, Um, Season four, uh, Selena Meyer became president at the end of season three. And season four was about her. It was close to the the election. So she was president for a few months and then had to run for re-election. So season four was about her running for re-election. She chose as her running mate, Hugh Laurie, who is um, her current vice president, you know, so they're on the same ticket. And his name is Tom James. So when the season ended, it was election night and the electoral college had come to a virtual tie. Uh-oh. Which made me learn about the 20th Amendment, kids, which means if the Electoral College lands in a tie, the office cedes to the sitting vice president, which would be Tom James, which would in likelihood make Selena Meyer again the Veep. Brilliant twist. Brilliant writing. Brilliant Whoa, show. Whoa, wait a minute. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. So her vice president becomes president. Then does he yes. name her as his vice president? Correct. Wow. Brilliant, brilliant writing. This has long been my favorite comedy on TV show. Spoiler for future list. But Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is there a way that we could make this happen in reality so Joe <laughs> Biden is president? Like, is that is that what you're telling me would happen if this, in this upcoming election between Trump or Cruz or Clinton Sanders, if that comes to a tie, Joe Biden would be president, is what you're telling me. According to the 20th Amendment, and I'm, again, getting this from the show, so I'm not quoting the Constitution, but if the Electoral College lands in a virtual tie because there's an even number, ridiculous, then the office goes to the sitting vice president. Can you imagine? (laughs) Dude, that's the only way this election (laughs) could get weirder. Oh God! So okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt. You love Veep. It's your favorite Veep. comedy. Go. It is all, um, all great new ways to learn how to insult people. <laughs> like you need help with that. It, it's always good to have a refresher. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So that's coming back. When does that come back? Do you know? Uh, April twenty fourth. April twenty fourth. Okay. Another HBO show, Silicon Valley. Is that HBO? Yes. Is that show? It, okay. um, it's Veep Silicon Valley. The same hour. Okay, now Silicon Valley, not necessarily political, but very bro-heavy from what I understand, right? It's very bro-heavy, yes, um, but also pretty – it has a lot of uh, comedians in it, stand-up right. comedians that I'm big fans of. Do you want – you don't watch it at all? I do not. Um, I do I do love the guy who was Brian Reynolds' best friend in Deadpool. I know he's in that. TJ Miller, yeah. Yes, he's funny. So basic premise is Tom um, – I always say Hiddleston. It is not Tom Hiddleston. Tom (laughs) Middleditch. (laughs) He plays Richard. I can can understand. I can understand the confusion. (laughs) Tom Middleditch comes up with this company, Pied Piper. I can't explain the tech jargon to you. My roommate would kill me for saying that. But he comes up with a company, Pied Piper. They win at a big Silicon Valley um, contest they have every year called uh, Deep. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever. doesn't matter. 
it doesn't matter. It's all technical stuff, but it is about the life of all these tech geniuses in their 20s and 30s in Silicon Valley. Um, modern day. Modern, modern day. day. Yeah. Pied Piper is going up against the conglomerate Huli, clearly based on Google. And um, Richard, who's Tom Middlech's character, has has branched out from Huli. He used to work there and has started Pied Piper. Huli believes that since he came up with this concept when he was an employee that they technically own it. Season two is all about them trying to prove in court that they own Pied Piper, which is now about to break through as the new darling. Um, so it ends season two with Huli losing the case. The the head of Huli, Gavin Belson, who is played by the guy. Did you ever watch Big Love? I did not. That's that's a cult thing. So it's more <laughs> of course. Rally. Of course. Um, so he, Gavin Belson is the CEO of Huli, and it ends with him going before the board, possibly about to be dethroned. And Richard, Tom Middleditch's character, his Pied Piper company gains another seat on the board, and they oust him as CEO. So he is no longer the CEO of the company he created. Wow. Um, so that's a lot of technical jargon, but at the core of it, it is all stand-up comedians, including Kamel Nanjiani, who's my favorite, T.J. Miller, as you spoke of, Tom Middleditch. Um, Gilfoyle is played by Martin Starr, uh, Freaks and Geeks fame, and he was also on Party Down. But it's it, it's the comedy of it. It doesn't matter. The whole situation, all the plot that I just mentioned, it's irrelevant because the relationships between the guys, all the bros hanging out, all these millionaires are in their 20s sitting around in their um, T-shirts and jeans bitching at each other. It's just, it's it's good fun. It's a good hour with Silicon Valley and Veep. Cool. I'll have to not watch that and not laugh. <sighs> Jack Barker. We meet at last. Ehrlich Bachman. I'm a big fan. Oh, really? Of what? Metamucil? Polio? The phonograph, a nice piece of fish, senior citizen discounts at Perkins Family Restaurants. All right, per the usual, we are going to end this episode of Some Like It Pop with a little show and tell where we auditorily show you something and tell you why it fascinates us. Jen, why don't you start us off this time? Okay, so are you familiar with the musical Shuffle Along? Do You do realize what I do for a living, right? I was asking so you could inform oh, the rhetorically. Yes. Okay. This was this was a setup that you did not prepare me for. Yes, <sighs> shuffle, uh, shuffle Along, which um, is actually not the the full name of the show. No, the, the original fu- Shuffle Along. Okay. The original Shuffle Along was a nineteen twenty one musical, there which was go. one of the first Broadway hits to be not only starring an entirely African American cast but also to be written and produced by african americans as well is that what you were looking for yes thank you broadway world editor um it also and correct me if i'm wrong was kind of one of the first introductions to an african-american style hoofing instead of tapping uh yeah it was a it was a dance heavy review it was a musical review yes. okay so currently in previews on broadway is the new musical shuffle along or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and all that followed starring audra mcdonald and it is basically the story of how that happened why i'm bringing this up is my childhood hero, Savion Glover, Mm. is the choreographer. And I first saw him on Broadway when he was 10 years old in The Tap Dance Kid. I saw him uh, maybe 8 to 10 years later in Bring In Denoise, Bring In Defunk. Wait, wait. Can you you say the name of that show one more time, please? Bring In Denoise, Bring In Defunk. You are so white with that pronunciation, (laughs) but I love it. (laughs) 
Yes, um, yes, Matthew, it is bring in the noise, bring in the <laughs> funk. But he was always kind of a hero of mine. He was also in an awful movie called Tap, which was made back in the 80s. The movie itself is horrible, but it is a fantastic recording of old style tap dancing it has a lot of really good tappers in it including gregory hines who was billed as the star so if you can stomach the terrible plot and the terrible acting <laughs> it has some really great dance sequences in it i bring him up because he appeared on seth myers the other night discussing his career and he is the choreographer for the show i just mentioned and then he performed a little uh, improv tap with the band on Seth Meyers. So here's just a little clip of him talking about his new job as choreographer of this new musical. Would you do a little tap for us now? Would you mind? I'm happy to do All that. All right, let's do it. Let me uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. up. And do you, feel, uh, do you feel tap gets the respect it deserves as, a, as an art form? Um, we are, I think because of the history of tap dancing, you know, we're, we're not yet at the pinnacle or the, the, the plateau that we should be, but, uh, there is hope in the dance. All right, let's do it. Now, do you remember the thing? Oh. Not only is Savion Glover the choreographer for Shuffle Along or the making of the musical sensation of 1921 and all that followed, but it was also directed by George C. Wolfe, the multi-Tony winner who also wrote, rewrote the book, and also stars Brian Stokes Mitchell, who, spoiler alert, in episode three of The Path makes an appearance. I didn't know that. I'm excited. It's a tiny, tiny appearance, so I'm kind of not exactly sure why he was there, but it also stars Billy Porter, uh, Brandon Victor Dixon, Joshua Henry, Adrian Warren, Brooks Ashmanskas. Uh, it is a star-studded cast and uh, is definitely one of those shows that is not necessarily going to give Hamilton a run for its money, but in addition to Hamilton and and then show uh, Sarah Bareilles' show Waitress is a very strong season for new musicals on Broadway. Coincidentally, Jen, Bring in the noise, bring in the funk was the <laughs> was the first Broadway show that I ever saw. Un- really? Yes. Unfortunately, Savion Glover was out that day, and I saw his understudy. However, my first trip to New York as a sixteen or seventeen year old um, incoming high school senior on a New York trip, we had a show that night we were staying in a hotel just across the street and i said if you want to go see a matinee go ahead and go get tickets on your own i got standing room only stood in the back of the theater and that was my first uh, oh. exposure to a broadway show well i'm glad you saw that that was a uh, maybe was we were great. there the same day but i saw savion so i guess we weren't no maybe same day different performance okay all right what i am going to show and tell you jen we have said before that if nothing else some like it pop promotes literacy uh <laughs> We are both, we are both, which is odd to me because I, until a few years ago, I would not have considered myself a reader. I always enjoyed reading, but I always felt like if I can watch a TV show in an hour or watch a movie in two hours and get an entire story, why would I want to read a book 
that would take me a week or two to read. So I would, I enjoyed reading, but I never really took the time to do it. However, in the past four or five years, I've started reading a lot. I'm generally reading a book all the time. And now that I've started doing reading comic books too, I kind of stick those in between novels. But last night I finished a book called Mycroft Holmes. For those of you that are familiar with either classic Sherlock Holmes novels or even the Sherlock TV shows and movies, Mycroft Holmes is Sherlock Holmes' older brother, who, according to the original Sir Arthur Conan Doyle books, is actually smarter than Sherlock Holmes, but as a career politician, has become incredibly lazy and does not like physical activity. In this novel, Mycroft Holmes, written by NBA Hall of Famer and career scoring leader Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you heard me correctly, <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, with a co-writer and a Waterhouse, but this he is credited first. She is kind of his backup writer. This is a story that happens before Sherlock is even out of school. And it is a much different Mycroft Holmes, a very idealistic version of the character who gets himself into a rather complicated mystery. I'm going to have you listen here to a little bit of the audiobook. What the bloody deuce are you doing, Holmes? He tried to say aloud, though he still couldn't find his voice. Are you determined to get us killed? Then he heard another sound, one that froze his blood. It was the pounding hoofbeats of their pursuers, mingled with jeers and laughing. Holmes must have taken a wrong and fatal turn, Douglas thought. But, rather than speed up, he was slowing Abby down to little more than a trot. All the while, the sounds were coming closer. Faster, Holmes, he thought frantically, though he still could not speak. Faster, for the love of all that is holy. Perversely, he could feel his friend pulling back on the reins, actually slowing their pace. It was such a mad choice that even Abby seemed reluctant to comply. Easy, boy, easy, Holmes repeated. The thugs were so very near that Douglas was certain he could feel their breath at the back of his neck. He dared to glance behind and immediately wished he hadn't. The villains had their sticks and whips and bottles raised high into the air. Those same mean weapons with which they beat their poor nags, they now plan to use on their unarmed quarry. And with the blow to his temple still so fresh and throbbing, Douglas was in no condition to fight. There would be little for him to do but roll up into a ball, take the blows, and hope that death came quickly. It's an engrossing story. It, it's a very quick read. It's about 320 pages, but it flies by. The story, when it's revealed, is a bit convoluted, not unlike things, TV shows that we've talked about today, but uh, the characters are great, and it's it's a really interesting story. And when you realize that it was written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who, in addition to being an NBA Hall of Famer and is also was in the movie Airplane, he is also a regular writer and documentarian who focuses on a lot of civil rights and historical issues. There is a lot of, of racial politics in this, and it, it's a very interesting way to look at these, you know, fairly... When you look at this book, seeing it through Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's eyes is a really interesting way to approach these characters, and I enjoyed the heck out of it, and I'm surprised that even though the book is fairly new, that there has not been any news of a movie adaptation, because this reads like a script. Anna Waterhouse, who was his co-writer, is actually a script doctor by trade. That is what she normally does. So I would not be surprised if eventually we see this turned into a movie, but it was very well written, and I'm actually more excited to see a follow-up 
rather than uh, a film adaptation. So, Jen, I recommended it to you earlier this week. So hopefully if you ever get around to listening to or reading Mycroft Holmes, we'll uh, we'll get a follow-up review and rebuttal from you. I think I could maybe take a break from my teen romances and check out something new. (laughs) Do Do you often read things that are not either vampire or dystopian? I, well, I'm a you know a big YA fan, so anything across the board that involves high schoolers, I'm all about. But you know, Ready Player One was really about a high schooler. <laughs> in in a um, dystopian society. Yeah. Oh, I see your point. Yeah. Um, there you I'll, go. I'll give it a whirl. Okay, good. I'm looking forward to it. All right, Jen, why don't you close us out for this episode of Some Like It Pop? Well, that's it for Some Like It Pop for now. I'm Eponine Q on Twitter, and Matt is at Matt. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter as the podcast at S-L-I-P podcast. You can find both of us writing on Broadway World about all of our current obsessions. And until next time, always remember, I can't identify as a woman. People can't know that. Men hate that. And women who hate women hate that, which I believe is most women. That's got to be Veep, right? Of course. This is really making me look bad. Bring in the noise. Bring in the funk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Broadway World's Some Like It Pop Podcast. You can find all of our episodes on broadwayworld.com, and you can get new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So, make sure to subscribe, download, and share the gift that is Some Like It Pop. Also, do our egos a favor and follow the show on Twitter at SLIP Podcast. We invite you to get in touch with Jen and me and let us know your thoughts on the shows, movies, and topics that we discuss every week. We will be back next week with our current top 10 favorite TV dramas, Listapalooza. And if you need more of me in your ear holes, check out Today on Broadway from Broadway Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or BroadwayRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll see you around the Broadway world.